Mark says that Jesus called on Peter and John and James and he walked with them up a high mountain. Among the gifts of our lives here in the Piedmont region of North Carolina is the proximity that we find to the foothills and the mountains of the Blue Ridge. Just a short drive from Greensboro and we have access to all of these beautiful trails and hikes, these waterfalls and overlooks, which is something that I seem to appreciate more than my children do. Nonetheless, hiking remains a go-to and easy activity for forced family fun because we can list the benefits, can't we? There's that release that you feel out in the woods. There's the exercise, that cardio boost. There's the mental health benefits. There's the connection with the beauty of creation, all of which can get lost when you are in the middle of the trail. I was remembering one recent hike, Stone Mountain State Park here in North Carolina. We had enjoyed the oft-overlooked natural water slide there in the park, and then we decided to park and to take the waterfall trail from the parking area before the obligatory ice cream stop on the way back at the general store. It was just a short trail, Jenny and I thought. But then we all started taking turns with the trudging and the delays and the various forms of protests until I finally, still relatively coolly, huddled everybody together and said, look, family, it is important that we know how to do this. So important, in fact, that we are going to do this trail one way or the other. And now do you see that mountain out there, I said, pointing to the bare hill of stone off ahead, wrapped by the Stone Mountain Loop Trail. I said, if any of us protest or trudge any further, we're going to finish this trail, and then we're going to hike that trail too. So stick with me, follow me for more hiking advice and parenting tips. But it is important that we know how to do this. We know how to get above it all and take in the wide view and experience something out of the ordinary and bond with those who walk this way with us. And it can take a lot of work and preparation and motivation to make it to the top. But there's something about hiking that many people forget, I think, and that is that once you get to the top, you have to prepare for the downhill too. And often the ache that you feel the day after a hike, it isn't from the ascent, it's from the walk down. From stretching your muscles as you head down the slope, tensing up as gravity starts to pull you, arching your back to avoid a fall or a face plant. On an uphill climb, we lean forward naturally, but walking down, we have to bend backward, and it is this unnatural posture for us. Sometimes it becomes hard to balance. We're using different muscles that aren't customary, and that's where you can get something like shin splints that flares up, or where your boot rubs raw a spot on your Achilles. That's where you can have a misstep that twists your ankle. Sometimes it takes so long that you get to the bottom and the ice cream shop has already closed. But you could make the argument that in some ways it can be harder to walk downhill than up. Well, high up on the mountain in our passage today, 
Peter, James, and John, they are taking in the grand view. They are relishing all that they've accomplished. This had been a relatively quick ascent for them, from casting nets and working in the family business to finding themselves following in the ways of Jesus, inspired by his healing and transformed by his teaching and learning to take on in their lives some of his elegant grace and becoming more than they ever knew they could be on their own. And with all of the adrenaline that comes from that, they must have raced up the hill in their perpetual contest to determine just who was the greatest after all. And then once atop the mountain, they could look back and they could imagine just how far they had come, filled with that kind of breathless longing that such peaks and overlooks can give us. Sister Joan Chittister has pointed out that mountains in Greek and Hebrew, Roman and Asian religious literature, they are always places where humans can experience and even touch the divine. In Exodus, Moses and Joshua, they ascend the mountain because that's where they can speak directly to God. And so in the same way, Jesus takes his friends up the mountain where they can see him clearly as transfigured Christ, where they can see him radiant and filled with light. And up on that mountain, they find themselves in what Celtic Christians would have, uh, would have termed a thin place. A thin place, because it's a place that is so elevated and it's so full of light that the veil that exists in our knowing between earth and heaven between human and divine as we imagine it, it just sort of seems to thin out to where it's so easy to see God, so easy to hear something like God's voice. This is my son, the beloved, we hear it say. So much easier to sense God's light transforming you and reinventing you. He was transfigured before them, Mark describes. And this is so often what we seek in our life. This is what we prepare for in our living, to ascend to those sorts of places, to get to the mountaintop, the dazzling light, the grand view, that feeling of accomplishment and satisfaction that we crave. Stephen Covey is a leadership theorist and executive coach with whom some of you may be familiar, and he spends much of his time with people who are in many ways ascending in life. They are leaders and executives who are reaching peaks in their careers. And once he was with a gathering of such leaders on a retreat, and he posed the question, what metaphor will we use to determine how we will live our lives? And Covey has found that most High-level executives, they use more than any other metaphor to understand their living, they use mountain climbing. Because they set goals for their lives, because goals help us know if we have lived successfully and we can look back and chart it. They make plans and necessary preparations. They measure progress based on the day's mileage. And they rarely stop, lest someone else should leave them behind. But Covey observes that the problem he sees is that you sweat and climb and you reach what you thought was the goal of your life, but when you reach the top and it levels out, chances are that you might feel an unexpected emptiness as though in all of your striving there were things that you missed. And most of us don't ever prepare to walk down from that kind of peak. And it's not just the overachievers the competitors, it is so many of us in so many parts of our lives, whether it's career 
or home, community service, family, education. Maybe it's our expectations of our children. Maybe it's even in our lives of faith. So many of us, we only know how to walk uphill. I think of a friend, Amanda, who had this transformative opportunity some years ago to spend a summer in Calcutta, India, where she would work in the homes of Mother Teresa. These were homes for street children and for people who were dying, people who were found in the streets by outreach teams, and they were carried back to a place where they could live out their final days in dignity and care. And Amanda had prepared for this for months. There was so much for her leading up to this moment where she would work alongside Mother Teresa. And maybe she'd be holding the hands of those who were nearing the end. Or maybe she'd be running programs for children that would help them to know that they were beloved of God. Only when she arrived, Mother Teresa wasn't there. And Amanda learned that Mother Teresa would be spending the bulk of those months on an international benevolence tour. And then when she reported for work her first day, she was placed in the kitchen where she washed pots. And then the next day, it was in the laundry where she was washing sheets. And this went on for weeks, and it frustrated my friend. And so she asked one of the others working there, Hey, I've been spending all of my time washing pots and cleaning sheets and folding bandages, and I wanted to work with Mother Teresa. What does Mother Teresa do when she's here? And this person said, Well, when she's here, Mother Teresa cleans sheets. She folds bandages. She washes pots. And somewhere the whisper could be heard for Amanda, for all of us who are racing up the hill. The greatest among you will be your servant. And it is so unnatural for us. This way down. The disciples resist it. Notice it. They're basking in the light. They're breathing all of that thin air. They've built a campfire there, and now they want to build some houses up there too. Rabbi, Peter says, it is so good for us to be here. And so let me set up camp. Let me construct some dwellings. Let me do whatever I can do with my own hands to bring some permanence to this glory, some continuation to all of this grand light, which is what we always do. We try to build walls around the good things of God. We bring in some furniture and we make a home there so we can just stay. Well, Jesus says nothing in response, but we look and we see that his actions say all that we need to know about what his ministry is about and what his life is about. We cannot stay here, Jesus seems to say. The mountain is not a place for dwelling. The light cannot be contained in the walls that we would build for it. And suddenly they saw no one with him anymore, only Jesus. And they begin to follow him as he walks down. And as he descends, we remember again that this way of Jesus, indeed this faith that we embrace, it is not the story of us going up. It is always a story about Jesus coming down. How many times have we assumed that the way of Christ, the way of Christian faith, is a journey up the mountain, searching for that light that we might ascend to it? But no, it is the story of Christ coming down, all the way down into our brokenness, our woundedness, our fear and disappointment and loss, 
This is the path that Paul writes about in Philippians, this steady descent that Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider this equality with God as something to be grasped or owned, but made himself nothing and took the form of a servant and humbled himself even to death, even death on a cross. Because the message of Christ from the manger to the cross is that the world is changed this way through humility, through power and weakness, through struggle, not from the top, but from the bottom. And for all of us wanting a mighty Messiah, he arrives as an infant refugee. And instead of a powerful ruler, he operates as an itinerant homeless teacher. It is not his demonstrative strength that we crave that ends up saving the world, but his enduring love that we sometimes miss. He humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. And as the risen Lord, he carries not only the wounds in his wrists and his side, but the wounds of all of those who have been beaten down and cast out and marginalized and despised. He has borne all of our sorrows. And so many of us are seduced by that offer that Satan made to Jesus in the desert, taking us high on a mountain, looking out. Just imagine, the tempter says, this can all be yours if you would but win this world with power. But Jesus will not be tempted, and he models instead this whole other way. Henry Nouwen has described this way and has described how from the beginning of his life, he feels like there were two voices that were speaking to him, and one was saying, Henry, be sure you make it on your own. Be sure that you achieve. Be sure that you do things that people can be proud of. But then now in writes that there was this other voice that he heard from time to time that was saying to him, Henry, whatever you are going to do, even if you don't do anything very interesting in the eyes of some of the people around you, be sure that you stay close to the heart of Jesus. Be sure that you stay close in your life to the love of God. And it was that second voice, of course, that ultimately called now in a Catholic priest and an academic to set aside a successful life as an Ivy League chaplain and psychologist to live at the large community in Toronto where he made a home together with people with mental and physical disabilities until his death. He gave the final 10 years of his life to this, and Father Nowen has described the path that led him to this place with a phrase. It's the phrase, downward mobility. And it is so unnatural Our muscles ache. We can barely balance sometimes. But isn't that so often the case with the path that leads toward the heart of God? If we wonder with the disciples why Jesus comes down, well, we find our answer in the very next passage. Because after they had come down the mountain, Mark writes that a great crowd met him. And then this man from that crowd shouts out on behalf of his son, who is possessed by a spirit that routinely sends him into these convulsions. And we read this, and maybe you realize that the mountains and the valleys of this world, they are right next to each other. And while there is so much glory and assurance on the mountain, down in the valley there are people who are suffering. Think of that boy and his father. What could they see from down below? 
Could they see that up that slope something was happening? Could they see that something was stirring in the clouds? Could they see the light so different from what swirled about them? And if they could see it, didn't it feel so far off from them? Oh, we'll never reach that, they must have thought. And so many of us would have had that reflex to keep it at a distance. We would have joined Peter and walled it off in our attempts to contain it, to stay near it, to dwell with it instead of following it downward. But it turns out that there are two beloved sons in this chapter in the Gospel of Mark. There is Jesus. But then there is this convulsing boy. And so Mark says that Jesus cast out the unclean spirit. Jesus took him by the hand, Mark writes, and he lifted him up. And you can't do that if you stay on the mountain. I admit that's hard for me to realize sometimes. It may be for you too. But so much of this life, it turns out, is a call to walk a path downward. And I am generally so unprepared for such direction. How, off, how often I want to just stay where the air is thin and the light is bright and the achievement is obvious and the power is close to me. Let's build some dwellings here, Lord. Maybe that's why when we first see Jesus coming down from the mountain, the text says he was all alone. The angelic figures had left him on that downward path. But how many of us leave him too? This morning, Christ walks down from the mountain and towards all that stretches out ahead. And we have the chance to ensure that he will not walk this way alone. But friends, if you're going to follow, just be prepared that it is a walk downhill. Amen.